got it. Got it, it says. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Regeneration Podcast. Uh, happy Easter, too. Happy Easter. It seems like for the past couple of weeks, uh, listeners who listen every week might realize that Michael and I and our guests were always referencing the changes in the lady at Zoom who's changing her voice. She's changed her MO. She was interrupting our podcast so that like when we played it back, we heard her say, you have begin recording. And uh, so anybody who does these things has to be fast friends with the lady at Zoom. I think she's annoying. I don't know what you think, Michael. I, I actually don't think she's real. You don't think she's real? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think she's a Chinese bot. Yeah, a Chinese bot, a Chinese bot. Well, um, we're, we're back with a, a guest who, I think this is coming full circle. You know, I don't know if it was our first two, but two of the first four for sure. We did a two-part series with David Cayley, who joins us again here on the Regeneration Podcast. David, David Cayley had a, you know, illustrious career and a long career with the CBC. And I've said it at a Front Porch Republic interview with David, and I said it last time, and it's only grown, David, I'll be honest. Your work in media is the single best body of work in any media, I think, book, radio, TV, that I've come across in the last 30 years. It is an education unto itself, and it continues to kind of blow my mind. You know, uh, we know, David, I hope you say something about this. You're working on uh, kind of a history of the- If the I'm not too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go but, on. Uh, you know, yeah, and today we're going to talk about Simone Vey, and we're leading into uh, what Michael, David, and I uh, all think about maybe the future of where this whole thing is going. We might talk about the gospel, the future of the gospel. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of parse our words. Are we talking about Christianity? I know we're talking, we're going to probably entitle the show The Future of Religion. And uh, David was insisting that, uh, you know, we're going to plug Michael Martin's uh, blog again, uh, The Druid Stares Back. I recently completed a series of three kind of rando articles on religion at Front Porch Republic. And uh, there's so many things happening in the church. We're going to talk about that. But David, when I go back, when we talk about Simone Vey, you're one of, I don't know, I think you've got to be one of the most informed people on her. We had, a, we had John Milbank on a couple of weeks ago. It was spellbinding. And you handle, when we listen to you interview John Milbank, which you've done twice at least, you handle his body of work, which was just above me, blowing me away. I could grasp at it. You handle it with a, a competency and a depth that's just kind of otherworldly. So I do want to just, for the good of the world, direct people to your work found at uh, your website, uh, davidkaley.com, and choose, I just want to encourage our listeners to choose topics that interest them and just to listen. I've just done it so much over the last 20, 30 years. So welcome, David well, Cayley. Uh, if, I, if I had to boast about my editing prowess, I would certainly hold up the editing of a at least three hours long interview with John Milbank. Um, what came out of that in the series called The Myth of the Secular? Because um, John is, is, is wild, right? Wild. He, he has a wild and luxuriant um, imagination and verbal wit. And once he goes, he goes, right? So it's 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 full of illusion, right? It, it is, and and of course, for a radio listener, illusion to okay, yeah. who who was who was that? Right? And, Buckle your seatbelt. So yeah. um, 
So yes, the editing of that interview into something that I felt, uh, you know, a committed listener could follow. Yeah. Uh, without knowing all the references, without knowing who Deleuze is, for example. Uh, um, yeah, I was proud of that editing. Yeah. And we and direct I hope, people. I hope John liked it. I hope John liked it. We never discussed it. But. Okay, I bet he did. You know, and it, yeah. again, if people listen to our conversation with John, um, that people can uh, go back to yours for like a, a better a better understanding of the larger picture, you know, the larger template from which it's working and so mm -hmm. forth. Hey, Michael, why don't why don't I turn it over to you? Because we said um, a couple of weeks ago, Michael was asking me like, we got to do Simone Vey, we got to do Simone Vey, and who are we going to have? And I'm like, duh, you know, it's going to be David Cayley. David was so gracious in responding, but I think it's only appropriate, Michael, that you, you kind of kick us in, you know, because something was burning in you, you know, there's kind of an evolution these conversations take, and we, we both <laughs> realize we need to bring somebody into this conversation. Uh, why did you want to talk about Simone Fay, Michael Martin? Well, the, the, the thing is, I mean, when I look at my own intellectual and spiritual formation, she's a, a huge figure there, and, but and in fact, uh, gosh, maybe 10 years ago when I was at Marygrove College, we hosted uh, the, the, you know, the Midwestern premiere of a documentary that was made on her called, uh, gosh, what was it called? An Encounter with Simone Weil, um, which, which is, if you, I'm sure you can find it online. It's, 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 it's well worth watching. Um, but it brought me when that was coming out. It, this is right around the time, um, around when the. Uh, so here, I'll actually back it up. So, so I had a, a, a course in college, on I think it was Christian existentialism, but the thing is they never offered these courses um, live in person. So and they, they were in the catalog, but they never showed up. So and I was an English major, so I went to the. The, the the head of the philosophy and religious studies department said, hey, you guys never offer these these courses. I would love to take them. And he said, yeah, well, how about I just give it to you as a tutorial? And this is a guy who went to Oxford, so he gave me an Oxford tutorial. And I'd read these books, and I'd come in, and he'd talk to them after the end of the week. Okay, come back, now read this book. And we did Simone Weil, and, you know, one of the things you find when you read Simone Weil is, you know, is one... One scholar of her of hers said, "You know, you cannot read her with and come away unscathed. Mm. You know, because her witness is so severe and her intellect is so penetrating, and her uh, scrupulosity is so imposing that it's you know it's it's hard to fathom how how uh, how important this is. I mean, you really have to re reconsider." If you, especially if you think of yourself as a Christian, what you mean by that word, and what you mean by an honest person, and and I, we think about this, and I and I talk about this with students all the time. You know, one of the things she said, "How can we just go about our daily lives when so many people are suffering?" And I, as I mentioned to students this week, because they were giving presentations on different things, and I said, "You know, you talk about this, but I mean, how many of us don't have blood on our hands? I mean, every time you you pump gas." your car you know how many people had to die in in, in the mid-east so you could have gas now you ever think about you're you're complicit in this in the system and simone Weil did that for me but the other thing she did for me and this is what 
because uh, I, I so I had a whole shelf full of Simone Veil in college, and then they just kind of stared at me from the shelf, looking at me, judging me from the for the shelf, and I'm like, okay, just don't look at me. And I think I must have gotten rid of them or sold them. And then years later, when I was working on my dissertation, I said, I need those books back. And and the reason being because my doctorate is in early modern English literature, and I was in particular focusing on the metaphysical poets. And there's a wonderful letter where she writes to Father Perrin uh, about her her experience with George Herbert's poem, Love Three, which she loved so much that she translated it into French and she would recite it to herself. And she said in this letter, you know, I used to recite, when I felt a migraine coming on, I would recite this to myself, a kind of a way to relax relax myself. But, it, but she said that after a while, it took on the virtue of a prayer. And then during one of these recitations, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. Right, which is for someone of Simone Weil's, uh, you know, self-awareness and having grown up in um, atheist environment, to say Christ Himself came down and took possession of me is a pretty bold statement, um, and and that kind of influenced so much of what I did afterwards in phenomenology and in the phenomenology of reading in particular like mean, what is it that happens when we read i mean i think she points to something because i think we've all had the experience when we're reading where we feel um, you know we don't think about it this way but we do uh it's like we have that person present to our soul the writer but in in particular works like george herbert or simone Weil, sometimes the subject of that subject's text can can penetrate through through that that window as well and take possession of us. You know, we have an experience experience of divinity or whatever it is, but it, it, it's you can't just describe it to you know the text. There's something that comes through the text, and she showed that to me. So that and that's what the, and so make make a, make a short story long. The reason, the reason I wanted to talk about her on, on the show is because she's the most obvious, one of the most obvious figures I should be talking, we should have talked about already. And, and because she's so present to me all the time, it's like she was, I was taking, taking her for granted. And said, Hidden in plain sight, as they say, right? Yeah, we got to get back to this, right? And she's a great fit. And I want to turn it over to Daly, uh, David, but... Uh, one one quote, just so people know, you know, the Regeneration podcast, Simone Weil, she could seem so ethereal, but uh, as she herself wrote, quote, the object of our search should not be the supernatural, but the world. The supernatural is light itself. If we make an object of it, we lower it. Mm. Um, you know, we have one of our themes, David, as you know, is the world, the world, the world. Um, and so, uh, David, tell us about you know, why you took an interest in her. Uh, why did you decide to do, I want to point people to an essay by John Lukash, a great historian on Simone Weil, one of the best things I've written on her. Uh, Carol Johnstone, who's contacted Michael Martin, we should have yeah. her on. And your BBC, I mean, your CBC series, Enlightened by Love, which I have in audio cassette version somewhere behind audio me. Audio cassette. Shelf. Yeah, wow. I'll show you sometime. I'll take, yeah, it's, I think it's behind Love me. a cassette player in your car. Yeah, I did. I did because I needed to hear these things again and again. I heard them on the CBC. Uh, tell us, David, your background and your interest in Simone Weil. 
Well, I suppose I was led to her by other intellectual heroes, first by T.S. Eliot, who was a champion, yeah. uh, particularly of the need for roots, which I think Faber published first. Uh, and anything Eliot said was a direction to me at yeah. that time when I was a, a quite a young person, undergraduate. And, and then later, George Grant, a Canadian philosopher, not very well known to Americans, but very well known in Canada at a certain time. Um, now, unfortunately, pretty much forgotten. Oh, I'll but, laugh. Uh, but uh, George Grant uh, was completely, I don't know why I want to say it in French, but bouleversé, knocked, knocked, knocked over uh, by reading uh, probably initially waiting for God, the first okay. collection that, well, maybe Gravity and Grace appeared first. I'm not sure, but whatever. Uh, and Grant uh, was, she had a major influence on his thinking. Um, so I, I began uh, to dip into Vey when I was uh, preparing to interview Grant, and then it just grew on me and grew on me until finally I did that series around uh, turn of the millennium. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, probably the most important statement in Simone Weil, the one that captured me, is she says in her one of her letters to Father Perrin, she was, she was living in Vichy, France. Uh, she was in dialogue with this Catholic priest who was also a friend, uh, but she was highly resistant to joining the church, although she haunted churches and, and adored the sacrament. Um, she says, my place is at the intersection of Christianity and everything that is not Christianity. Mm -hmm. So in other words, she, she demands that Christianity become universal. Uh, and what does that mean? It's, it's something you can think about uh, forever, but it seems to me it, it spoke for my experience and I presumed it spoke for so many people's experience, right? That, that the mass exodus from religion, from Christianity is, is based on some such intuition that this, how can this be true if there are all these others who experienced the truth in a completely different way. Um, so uh, how can God have disclosed himself in one place, in one person? Uh, it, it must be a question that every Christian has asked and either concluded, well, that's just the way God is. That's his partiality uh, for the Middle East must have just been one of his peculiarities, and um, and that's part. I mean, if I can quote Ivan Illich, once we were discussing uh, the passage in the Gospels, which in which Peter is given the keys of the kingdom. You are Peter, and on this rock I will found my church, and what you bind in heaven will be what you. How, how does it go? What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be yeah. loosed in heaven. In other words, he gives 
Peter seemingly supernatural jurisdiction, the sort of jurisdiction the Pope would later exercise in saying that people who went on the crusade would be given so many years off in purgatory. How on earth can the Pope exert jurisdiction over a spiritual realm? Um, how, how, I mean, so I said to Ivan, well, I've never been able to accept this passage. Uh, I believe it's a, a it's an interpolation in the, in the teaching of Jesus. And he said, well, I take it as written um, because that is my faith, but I can't explain it to you except to point out that it's a joke. You are Peter James <laughs> Rock. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and Peter was obviously a very unsteady rock as, as you know, his, his failures are, are are notable in, yeah. in the Gospels. To say the um, least. Uh, so, but, so, and then he finally said, you know, I take that as the darkness of God. Well, that's one way of looking at it, right? It is, it is, that's just the way it was. The incarnation was here for these people. It didn't get to the others for 1500 years. When it didn't arrive, it arrived on a gunboat. In, in the face of a, in, in the form of a cruel conquest, uh, an epidemic disease, the whole business, that this is God's providence. Vey uh, speaks uh, for a, a strange combination of faith, because Christ, as Michael quoted, took possession of her. Uh, she had that experience. And yet she remains a rationalist. She, she insists on, again, Michael's nice word, scrupulous, but she was very scrupulous, scrupulous thinking uh, that, um, that every resource of the intellect must fully, faithfully, exactingly exhaust itself. Uh, before the threshold of faith is even reached. Faith shines a light into that intellectual proceeding. So she spoke for me because I couldn't mm -hmm. stop thinking. I couldn't stop asking questions. I couldn't stop seeing the gospel as a tissue of, of contradiction, right? Right down to its root. It, for me, it's a tissue of contradiction, right? Mm -hmm. This is, uh, Illich says, he said to me that the incarnation is a surprise, remains a surprise, and could not exist as anything else. That's not what the gospel says. Jesus is constantly telling the disciples to search the scriptures. They'll see it's all foreordained. This is, it had to happen like this. Have you not read? He says. So is this a divine plan? It all had to happen this way, then it's not a surprise. It's a necessity. It was, all, it was, it was thought up from before, before. Well, how can you think of that? Contradiction is at the heart of it. It's, it's, it's shot through with contradiction. 
So they, uh, for me, is the thinker of contradiction, of universality, of the idea, very important in her, that faith cannot be compelled, uh, that belief cannot be compelled. It's a matter of experience. Uh, you know, so her critique of the church is is damning and exhaust <laughs> and exhaustive. It goes right to the heart of the problem of an institution that wants to take jurisdiction over something that cannot be brought within any jurisdiction. So for me, just to conclude, she's she's the thinker that points the way forward. Yeah. Yeah. Does she also at the same time, David, kind of like, sounds like if I'm hearing you right, she's almost kind of wrapping up one era, right? And pointing the way forward at the same time. Her her systematic scrupulosity in raising all these contradictions, you're saying it's so totally comprehensive that it, to read it is to maybe help us kind of kick in. You know, I think what we see is so many people are hanging on, hanging on, you know. Um, well, I mean, we hang on when we're afraid, yeah. I think, don't we? And we're, you know, we're seeing that at the moment across the board in a reactionary move that in journalism wants to save truth as if truth were a, had formerly been a bolster in journalism that wants to save science in some sort of pure Cartesian form that never existed, that, that wants to save all modern certainties as a hedge against incipient chaos. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I don't, I mean, Vey is, is, I think, a prophet. I think she's also very much mistaken on many, many points. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say that she's the last word. I mean, she sure. says, for example, that the Gospels are the last expression of the Greek genius. Well, that's a perverse way of reading the Gospels to completely divorce them from Judaism. Judaism, right? Because she <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. she was, she read the New Old Testament in a cursory way, and she was appalled by it, and you know, perhaps quite properly appalled by it, right? When God reproves Saul for not slaughtering every last vestige of the Amalekites, how is one to read that, right? He, he leaves a person and maybe a cow or something alive. And remember did, the past. Did your friend Northrop Fry ever comment on Simone Fay in your presence, especially on like her use of the uh, <clears throat> Old Testament? No, I never heard Fry mention Simone Fay. Okay, um, interesting. And I don't know what Ivan thought of Simone Fay, huh. Ivan Illich. Um, I was going to ask you that next. He, he, Ivan Illich had a very close friend called Lee Hoynatsky, who was also a very close friend of mine, and he was, they were, they were lifelong friends, going, going back to when they were young men. Um, and Lee was a, an enthusiastic and intense reader of Simone Weil. And one day there was a, a book with a picture of Weil on the table, and Ivan pushed it away. <laughs> <laughs> And he said to me, she reminds me of my mother. Yeah. <laughs> and, 
that's the only word I ever heard from him on the subject. And Isn't I, I think he I think he held his mother rather at a distance. But we never got to discuss it. And and I think probably the words Michael used, two very well chosen words, severity and scrupulosity, may have been a little repellent to Ivan. And also on this point of of, of history, right? The Ivan was a, a faithful Christian who held that it was, as I said, part of the darkness of God that this should have occurred as it did, where it did, whereas Vey, the Platonist, would not accept that. She says the truth must be equally present at all times and in all places to those who suffer. Therefore, the, although the incarnation may be an exemplary instance of Christ's presence, and she accepts that it is an exemplary instance, probably the supreme instance, um, nevertheless, Christ must be present at all times and in all places uh, to be Christ. Otherwise, she said, we could never forgive God. And an, amazing, an amazing statement. Yeah. Let, let's uh, if we which, use, which is which just reminds reminds me of Paul Ceylon, right? Pray to us, Lord. Right. What, what have you done to us? Huh. Yeah. So so if if we if we look at you know knowing that we're going to end up talking about the future of religion, you know, a word that was common to Illich is watersheds, right? Watersheds. Yeah. So I think you know talking about Simone Vey as kind of a watershed figure, seeing some crucial things. You know, another one. Um, an insight she had, and I've loved both your opinions on it. Uh, I saw this in her writing. It's there. It's lifted up and made central in, again, one of my favorite essays on her by the historian John Lukash, is the notion that she she saw that it would possibly be a certain form of justice that could lay the world to waste. And that um, Lukash said that Simone Weil wanted to put out truth. A line from Lukash, uh, you know, there's something in this world that is more important then the pursuit of justice, it's the pursuit of truth. We are menaced less by the prevalence of injustice than by the prevalence of untruths. Uh, she got some of this, he insists, from uh, Bernanos. And um, and what do, you, what do you, uh, you know, the governing lies of the world, that certainly, you know, well, when I look at the world, we're, yeah, like, we're ruled by well, lies, yeah. <laughs> That's where we live yes, right sure. now. Well, you know, yeah. one of the things, I mean, speaking of truth, I mean, her, probably I think her most, um, striking statement is when she says truth is an explosive right and i and i whether you're talking about the truth of christ or just truth of world historic events you know we live in a period of what they called it in the soviet era hyper normalization right where we know everything's baloney you know everything's baloney the government knows we think it's baloney but we're all going to pretend it's not baloney right that's hyper normal we, we're thinking everything's fine yeah and then and then you know for instance just recently we had this this kid who leaked those pentagon pentagon documents this week and so the fbi can find him in 24 hours <clears throat> and they still can't find the guy who who, who or who, the woman who who leaked the supreme court <laughs> you know they can't find the guys who are infiltrating the f uh the january 6th thing <laughs> they can't find those guys but they can find this kid in 25 minutes right come on um so but we go along with it and we pretend it's it's not truth but this is what 
when she talks about witnessing to the truth and this is like david said you know with her scathing examination of the history of the church why she couldn't enter right because coercion is not faith um that's a that's a witness to the truth and that I mean, you can see that in that recent uh substack i wrote about the institutional church and the mystical church that's basically where i was coming from i can't buy it right i can't and to be intellectually honest is not easy boys and girls right it's not fun all the time because you know you you'll stop being invited to the fun parties you know but you have to do it i mean i you know as a as a philosopher you know you have to and this is what she was right she had she couldn't deceive herself right even if she was wrong she couldn't lie she knew she couldn't lie to herself and to the point of massive inconvenience in her own life yeah yeah so i'm blaming David. her yeah. <laughs> Are you waiting on me? Yeah, say something about truth and justice and Simone Weil, you know, <coughs> and, and where that stands at kind of this moment. Well, I, I don't think I understand this as fully as it, it pertains to our proposed subject, but um, obviously intellectual honesty um is is the virtue you know supreme virtue in, in her and and how there can be a church that's compatible with such honesty is a, i guess the subject we're trying to address mm -hmm. uh and i've you know i i, I think if i had explained what I had thought the church ought to be at certain points in my life, you know, people would have said, well, it sounds like a graduate seminar. How are you going to do that? Right. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I don't know how, how it ought to be. Right. We, um, my inability to be part of the institutional church, uh, I mean, came to a head long ago one Sunday when I was attending a little church when we were living, I was living in Vancouver and came home. Maybe I told you guys the story before, but it made a big impression on me. Uh, I came home and, and my wife said quite amiably, innocently, um, how come you're always in a worse mood when you come back from church than when you go? It's a relevant question. <laughs> and I, I had to think about it. And I thought, well, I think I know the reason is because it's a constant and ir ir somewhat irritating intellectual wrestle, right? So I can't accept a lot of what is being said. It isn't... I, I need I need this to be in a new form, uh, but it, I understand that it has to be kept in this form. And, and this was the paradox that Illich uh, reflected on, right? In his 
his career in the church, which lasted from his ordination in 1951 till his inquisition in 1968 in Rome, um, he constantly insisted that innovation and tradition were a, an indissoluble pair, that they couldn't, uh, that to separate them and to think each separately would, would be fatal. Sterile traditionalism, mm -hmm. completely unmoored innovation uh, with no root. But, but I, I think that is a paradox. It is a contradiction. There, there isn't, they, they don't, they're not harmonized, right? right. They, are, they are thought together as opposites, I think, mm -hmm. right? And, and how, how that could found an institution is, 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 is anybody's guess, I think, <laughs> you know, but the institution on the other hand is manifestly failing. Absolutely. I think that can't be denied. I mean, Michael has just written about his inability to carry on, right? And for me, that's older, but it's, it's, I don't think it's very different. How uh, would you describe the manifest failure of the church if you unpack that in your own terms, David? You know, we can talk about numbers, we can talk about, but even, you know, even deeper than that. I don't think I can talk about that. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like this, I know anything that's of interest. Right, right, that, right. That you, that you don't know already. Uh -huh. uh, for me, it's it's the inability to be in the situation that I experienced that, that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, to to begin to experiment, to begin to try and understand what a religionless Christianity would be. Mm -hmm. which was Bonhoeffer's phrase, right? Mm -hmm. Which he began to experiment with in his letters from prison in, in right. 44, um, 1944. So, but what is that? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it means you would have to, you first have to understand religion in in its several senses, right? So, you would have to distinguish, for me anyway, religion as what Karl Barth calls a yoke, right? It belongs to us to praise, to worship, to reach beyond ourselves. Uh, and we, we wear that as a yoke, as, as an inescapable destiny. We are homo religiosus. In, in that sense, that's how I understand part anyway. Um, but that's the one side. But the other side is they saying religion is only a looking. Right? She says that. Religion. So that's what she said. Religion properly is only a looking. It's a, it's a way of seeing. It's, it's, yeah. it's dogmas potentially shed light. Uh, so 
but that's that's an unconstrained act. That's 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 a, something that's free uh, and possible. It's not something that can be made to occur. Mm -hmm. So those are the, the, so those I think have to be thought together um, because we're probably living. This is Illich again, right? This might be the most but the most Christian age, he says, right? And that there's a passage in the River's Note of the Future where he, I, I, I use the term post-Christian. He, he probably knows perfectly well what I mean, that I'm just referring mm -hmm. to after Christendom. Yeah. But he takes the opportunity to reprove me and say, no, this, on the contrary, I, I do not think we're living in a post-Christian age. I think we're living in the most Christian age, uh, which then he dares to say might be very close to the end of the world. Uh, so this is speaking in a very unguarded way for a man who has pretty strictly stayed away from apocalyptic statements throughout his right. life. Um, so the most Christian age, what does that mean? Well, he, at one point in talking about risk as a way of thinking, he, he refers to it as a, ceremon a religious ceremonial, maybe the most prevalent religious ceremonial of our age. So he, Interesting, yeah. he's thinking that the Christianity spreading out from the church has absolutely pervaded the language, the mentality, the institutions of, of the West and, and through the West of the world to a certain extent. What nuggets of Christianity would you say, some examples of the nuggets that have pervaded, that have spread? Well, you know, what feed my sheep right the the pastoral mission which is this is in Foucault more highly developed than in Illich the pastoral mission of every institution is is completely taken for granted I mean care as John McKnight says the mask of love is what which institution is not providing care uh, we're we're suffused with pastoral care. Um, and to that extent, uh, we take our righteous goodwill so much for granted, right? Uh, but I think you, you find this in vague. So I, I marked a passage here that was always really important to me. Uh, she says, um, Primitive Christianity concocted the poison represented by the notion of progress through the idea of a divine system of education designed to make men fit to receive Christ's message. This fitted in with the hopes of a universal confusion, conversion of the nations and the end of the world regarded as both being imminent. So she 
she held that although the resurrection is real, uh, it it functioned in Christianity as a way to take the, to deny the reality of the crucifixion. Mm. That's that's the essence of her thought in a certain way that that um, that this is all a puppet play, right? It's all. Well, yes, he has to die. It's written in the scripture. Okay, he suffered, but the suffering is is eclipsed, right? It's the uh, Easter erases the memory of Good Friday, uh, and once the resurrection and the ascension have occurred, then the whole drama is over. No. It, it's the truth is is fully revealed. It's fully present. We have it because it's been disclosed to us, and therefore, as Faye says, all that's necessary is a kind of divine system of education. We just have to make sure everybody else gets it. Right. Uh, so <clears throat> maybe that's uh, the essence that that. The game is over in a certain sense. What's well, interesting, right? though, because she does does that, but the other thing she does is she actively seeks suffering, right? I mean, yes. she has a cushy teaching job to go work in a Renault factory. She joins the army. The most, <laughs> she's, you know, this is not the per kind of person you would you would see carrying a gun and. You know she's a pacifist, so she she's going to join the army. She can't let other people suffer while she's has it easy. And then, and then the way she died, right? She she yeah. refuses to take more nourishment than the soldiers at the front line would take. So the, the question is whether she even killed herself, right? Yes. So, so there's that side of her too. I mean, she's a kind of a paradoxical figure in that for me. Um. So. And you know that's that's probably the part that I couldn't take when I was here the first the first go through. I can't. It's it's hard enough already, sister. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I well, can't seek out more suffering. Yeah, I mean that's what George Grant said, right? She's she's far above me. I've 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 lived an ordinary uh, life, uh, and and she obviously. Has possesses some kind of sanctity, right? Which uh -huh. uh, is is supernatural in a certain sense of the word, right? Uh, so, yeah. So, David, if you, you know, if we think, generally speaking, you know, Simone Simone Vey, along with others, including Illich, you know, we're kind of pointing to a watershed such that somebody like Bonhoeffer, who is at the very center of symbolically and well, in, in, in reality, was at the center of something. And, and let's just be honest, you know, Simone Weil, another insight, um, you know, it was just that she saw, I was going to grab a quote, but she saw, it's inevitable that evil predominate everywhere where technology is either completely or almost completely sovereign. You know, this is another big theme of the Regeneration podcast, mm -hmm. kind of the aramonic evil Steiner, or it would be the left brain dominance over the right brain, all this stuff. So we want to, you know, at least point out to our listeners that she was early on this. She was clear 
She was prophetic and she was devastating. You know, so coming from a couple of these things, you know, the role, the role of technology, you know, she she saw all this very clearly. Again, John Lukash can't believe how prophetic she was. You know, it's interested for some people, we won't talk about Rudolf Steiner so much, but John Lukash, who I think was able to take it all in, you know, he was so influenced by Owen Barfield. So he was aware of this kind of worldview that you could have, you know, that history can grant you something, a challenge for which you have to surmount and there can be something new. So we're kind of talking about watersheds and Simone Weil today in this conversation will be with us as something of a presiding spirit of this conversation. But let's talk about this watershed a little bit and uh, the future of religion. You know, and one thing I wanna kind of throw by you, David, cause you were talking about Illich is a quote that I use uh, as something of an insipid uh, to the, the final article I wrote for Front Porch Republic. And you and I discussed this a little bit in correspondence, because you had read those. Um, this is Illich, you know, um, that, and I'll, I'll read the quote, but the, the notion that at this watershed juncture, very hard for us to believe, that we might be able to see things more clearly that we had to hold on faith. And so here's the Illich quote, you know, for the first time in history, and this is, you're woven into this quote, uh, I give you only one of the Beatitudes as an example. One will be able to give scientific proof that blessed are the poor, who voluntarily set community limits to what shall uh, be enough and therefore good enough for society. And this is you, David. He implies in offering only one beatitude that the other beatitudes had become equally susceptible of scientific proof. That the hour is also struck for the peacemakers, the merciful, the pure in heart, and so forth. And I'll, I'll add the other quote that I tie in with that from Gerald Hurd, who's come up in this broadcast um, or in this podcast, not today. He says, what was esoteric and intuitive can now be exoteric and explicit. What had been a traditional ritual may now become an experimentally verified science. These things interest me a lot. You know, when, when I talk about these watersheds and what I've been trying to do in, in these series of articles at Front Porch is some gut feeling I have that, um, and it's, we talked about how we might use this word religion. But for me, religion in one sense, you know, I can say is the disease that Jesus came to cure. And, and the reason I use that is that, you know, looking at the experience of so many of these young people, uh, you know, who are entering the church, you know, to generalize on a lot of anxiety disorders, I can say that eight out of uh, 10 young people joining the church, mostly male, but also male and female, probably suffer with a diagnosable condition of scrupulosity, obsessive compulsive disorder. And to me, it seems like you know, from the early church that I symbolized maybe by a circle, um, all of a sudden after the Edict of Milan, in some way, shape or form, uh, everybody becomes nominally Christian. And what you have to do at that time is to exercise some form of crowd control. And so there's, a, you know, whether we call it a proscenium arch when it's used in a theater or bread and circuses, or the altar rail where the priesthood is elevated up, you know, the monks took off for the desert to live true authentic Christianity. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the priesthood is kind of separated from, from the people, uh, symbolically and literally, an altar rail. Um, that we use these kind of crowd control techniques to and uh, uh, their own form of bread and circuses. And I think that as we see this vast hemorrhage from the church, that, I, you know, it's always what we call um, 
you know, a recapitulation with a difference. You know, some people and Harold Bloom, you know, or when anybody talked about enthusiasm, this kind of notion we can go back to the primitive Christianity. But I, I tend to think for the sufferers I see, there's a liberating message in the gospel and it's really confused, confused by a lot of this, um, this kind of hocus pocus that goes on. And I'm, I'm, I'm a real believer, you know, in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I think when we talk about real presence or real, real presence, I think that's, that's, that's emblematic, some of this language use of the, the hocus pocus. Um, and so when Gerald Hurd and Ivan Illich are saying some things are being perceptible in our time, it's right there in Rudolf Steiner too. We don't need to talk about him. But I almost think we're getting, in one way, we're getting ripped away from religion and we're, you know, but I, I want to start naming what might come next. But if we are able to perceive more, a lot of this stuff that we called religion, it was totally appropriate in its time. No, no. We had to hand on the Beatitudes in a way that we almost bowed before them. Now we need to appropriate them within ourselves and take risks. And it seems to me, you know, drop a lot of this language of love. We need things like courage and courtesy um, and hope. You know, Rudolf Steiner even, he had, you know, in my article, I talk about the word being used against the word. You know, maybe the time to, to in the Beatitudes, every Beatitude is used with a reward thing. Is it the time we have to talk about doing right because it's right? Well, um, Ivan Illich or John Calper Powie said, you know, the, the Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, which was so crucial and axial for Ivan Illich. John Calperpaus would say, and he was a perceptive reader, it seems to be the only place in the New Testament where you don't preserve the, you don't perceive the presence of a prospero like, you know, kind of prickly deity and so forth. Uh, Michael, I know you're, you're, you're itching to say something. Well, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, so, um, you know, as my you know, position for a while has been part, part of the bane of the church has been, been, uh, it's been basically run by monastics for <laughs> for most of history, right? And that uh, for seventeen hundred years. And as I think you observed, Mike, didn't somebody tell you at the monastery that most of the guys in there are either either gay or on the spectrum, right? Well, you could say in monasticism uh, across the board. I have a friend who's visited a lot of monasteries. Yeah, you're dealing with, uh, you know, repression, uh, autism, or homosexuality. Yeah, or and, and so when you were talking about that, I was thinking about that, and I think that's part of the problem in at least the Catholic and Orthodox churches is that you have those guys for the last 1,700 or 1,800 years um, calling the shots for how the married people should live. And But the other thing is, I mean, I couldn't help but think those are the kind of people who like to have authority and like to have control, like to have things ordered, right? It's Bill Gates. <laughs> it's Bill Gates. It really is. And and I and I see a lot of these young people you're talking about who are drawn to, and we talked about this before, are drawn to those more severe and, and traditional forms of Christianity because you got somebody who is the father, you call father, telling you what to do. All right? I mean, it's, you know, if if, Rudolf, if uh, Sigmund Freud had been, hadn't been born, we would have had to invent him, right? Very funny. Um so I, there's there's that part of it, but the other part, and another of of David's uh, interlocutors, Charles Taylor, in his book uh, A Secular Age, talks about the church in say in medieval times, where 
and I get accused of being a medievalist. I don't know why. Um, but Charles Taylor was saying, no, let's look at the church during medieval times. It was not how we think of it now. You know, what was important then was the community, these little tiny communities, whether it was in England or France or wherever, right? Little tiny places that were so far out of the orbit of the Vatican and of all the power structure, where all that really mattered was not whether the priest was celibate, or, but it was whether he was a good man who, who the people trusted, right? Um, and it was not until after the you know the reformation came in and this is the reformation and the counter-reformation to me are, are two examples of you know uh dueling neurotics <laughs> who who just get in there and want to tighten up ship and they're all about the rules and they're going to straighten things out and then oh you think that's straight now well, we're going to straighten out in a straighter straightened out way and it's just absurd and what happens is and and uh, what and all the through church history every time there's a count, count there's a council because because people are losing control <laughs> that's why they hit what councils were to to reassert control over the message right um and so that so like for instance uh paul vanderclay i think he doesn't he thinks of me as a medievalist but i'm not at all uh but what i'm calling for in that article is a decentralization of of let's not not call it christendom but another person who, who wrote about this and actually experienced a lot of criticism and it wasn't published in his lifetime and when it was published at first it was heavily edited was novalis's book uh christendom or europe where he's you know you could read it one way and thinking he's just hearkening back to a romantic a, a picture of the medieval age but he's not he is looking at the effects of um, the scientific scientific revolution and uh, the impending industrialization that was accompanying that, and seeing you know Blake did this right. This is what Blake was railing against the, uh, the satanic mills. That there's you know we're losing something extraordinarily essential, and I think a big re big part of uh, what we can call the 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 rats leaving the sinking ship of christendom is that it's hard to to play the game any longer especially after after COVID and everything that um that these institutions are, are in any way deserve our trust or not, not just trust but we should in, in any way put ourselves under their authority um even though that wouldn't be a much easier way to do it. so and and rudolf steiner would say well this is because what we need now are new forms these old these older forms no longer function and and essentially they're like shells they're they're there and they're pretty but it's the substance is gone it's there's there's a and that's not a, a, a necessarily a case of getting with the times which i think is a horrible response or but it's really and it, it takes, I don't know how it, it's going to happen, but it takes the courage, as you mentioned, Mike, of, and, and this is why I think, where I think Simone Weil is important, because she, her intellectual honesty, you know, forced her to see things as they, as at least as how she perceived them, and not to lie to herself, 
right? And that w I think a lot of the times what's going on, what I see, is we tell ourselves lies about what's in, right in front of us. And because we want to believe the fairy tale or whatever it is, right? We want to believe the, the ideology. And another, so the other thing where, where we just end with this is part of it, as I think, I think what, what happens is we get uh, hampered by the conceptual life and we get hampered by ide the, uh, the ideology. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, like the severe kind of ideology that you, you subscribe to and you send in your donation every six months or whatever. Um, we just kind of do it unconsciously. We subscribe to it. And one of the things Rudolf Steiner said, and I never, I don't know where this is in his books, and but somebody, I heard it by second hand, and I think it's, even if he didn't say it, it's worth saying that uh, he wished that every day he could have a different word for anthroposophy because if he had a different word for it people wouldn't have a conception of what it is so you yeah. have to start fresh and i think christian can use good. one of those yeah. right that's very interesting well when I, those since we talked of those simone Weil programs they were part of a set that i imagined as four separate radio series one with rene jihara one with simone Weil, one with yvonne Ivan Illich and one with a, a, a Dutch criminologist called Herman Bianchi, who also was trying to bring biblical language into the discussion of justice, um, more known in Europe. Um, and when I was discussing this plan with my executive producer, who was a dear friend and a, a miraculously indulgent boss, um, <laughs> He said, well, this is good, you know, that you're looking at all these different contemporary receptions of Christianity, but I want you to get back to, you know, afterwards, you know, to the nitty gritty, to the real political world or whatever, the social political themes. And, and I, I remember thinking, I don't know if I said it to him, but that's what I think this is, right? This, this exactly is it's set apart in your mind because somehow it concerns religion. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it doesn't concern the world. So that that's the thing, the idea that I think needs to be gotten over, right? If, I, me too. If you talk of the Middle Ages, I mean, we religion then didn't mean what it means now. Mm -hmm. It meant something much closer to a, a virtue, a practice, a way of life, right? Mm -hmm. It only It's only in the early modern period that that religion somehow coalesces as a i mean with the reformation right that then what you believe becomes you know your 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 body of religious precepts your 39 articles of religion become very right. important right and and what everybody believes then becomes important and you know i um it's like children. I remember coming out of something like children. My daughter with some friends all on the porch, and they're all talking. They were about seven or eight years old. Whether they believe in God, yeah, yeah, as if that was some kind of sensible question. Yeah, right. And it's there's the big guy is up there or he's not up there. So which is it? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so okay, yeah, <laughs> but. Um, 
I, I, so I think this whole, and then the, the following on from that, then is the idea that if religion is in fact the way of life, it's whatever binds us, whatever compels us, whatever we ultimately uh, believe to be good enough for us, what we will live, um, then, you know, we have to confront the actual religion uh, that we're living in, right? And that that is what I took out of Illich, is that without uh, an exploration into the present, but also into the past, because how did this all come about, right? And what is it covering, right? Uh, what is hidden by it what is, is, is becomes the primary task. Um, but it's it's hard to get that across in, in a, a milieu like the broadcasting milieu that I worked in, right? That there's there's a lot to talk about, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and there's a lot to talk about that isn't the news. It isn't the latest scandal that isn't the latest misstatement that isn't you know this this orgy of scandalization that that takes up all the mental space uh through the news media and if you talk to nine out of ten people who want to reform the cbc they want to have more news mm. right they want to have let's get we gotta got get back to trusted news you got to get back to the fact. <laughs> All yeah, this kind yeah. of, which it's it's easier to think that way if you don't know anything about the history of journalism. Yeah. You've never heard of William Randolph Hearst or uh, a hundred others that I could mention. But so, yeah, it seems to me that 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 this question of the future of religion is also uh, an investigation of the contemporary religious environment as a religious environment right the corruption of the best is the mm -hmm. worst worst how do people who think themselves and how much more superstitious are people who who think that they're scientific yeah mm -hmm. uh because their their superstition is completely hidden from them yeah um right so yeah you saw David in my uh, in, in kind of my approach. You know, I think that you know the way we're talking here is super useful for all of us. You know, we we all kind of have had experiences in church. We're pretty conversant with different denominations, Catholicism in particular. But uh, you know, in my ponderings um, and thinking, I, I I think that like the Catholic Church. You know, we could say Oswald Spengler or even Steiner, you know, maybe the Russian age is going to come first and so forth. But the, um, you know, I, I have a lot of interest in a new iteration of the Catholic Church or the faith, you know, that might come more from the American land. Last time we had some really interesting conversations about uh, uh, Native American resources we could draw on. But, you know, I also have an image that the first thing, you know, Simone Weil was defined by like resistance. Um, this notion of if we can help people, you know, look behind the curtains, you know, in my last article, I just knew, I'm not saying it was inspired, but all of a sudden, 
the idea of Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, you know, looking at these adults, but like a feminine girl rooted to the earth, obviously a girl, a, that feminine charism rooted to the earth, just saying like, what's actually going on here? You know, and looking behind the curtain and seeing that like most of these fruit priests are kind of whack jobs. Uh, you know, that um, even Alan Watts back in the day, he, he would, I forget, maybe it was beyond theology. He, and I was in graduate school for theology at the time, but he, he gave me a visual of, you know, which I knew from being an altar boy, these people hanging out. He has them smoking cigarettes, you know, in the sacristy before going out and putting on this show. Right. And, but, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he just thinks the show could be better um, by having maybe, again, he says, we feel like on a bus. How about having like, you know, just comfortable chairs. And he, some of his essays are really prophetic on that anyhow. But when I'm saying this, and you mentioned all these religions, and we were all pretty conversant with this, but it, uh, you know, that there's the religion of medicine going on now. So look behind the curtains. Is Anthony Fauci, is he just more of a, is he more of a bishop kind of weird church type? Yeah. That Pope, right. And then we're going to do it behind the schools. You know, we're going to peer behind the curtains of the mystique of schools. Illich, of course, is really, really helpful in all this. But I, I tend to think you know, that we probably first need this word and you guys can help me or, or the task of peeking behind the curtains. But is the stage, is it destruction? Um, you know, what are we doing? But I, I have a gut feeling that we need to start calling spade a spade and just use a kind of a child. And it, there's a lot of humor. I just, I know in my gut, the temperament we need to pull this off isn't one of mad rage. You know, that's why I always say we need a marriage, a hieroscamos between Homer, Cervantes, this great earthborn mystical stream, Rabelais, Walt Whitman, and the humor in that to peek behind the curtains of the proscenium arch um, and say, what's going on? And I think once people kind of peek behind the curtains, there'll be this great kind of release that like the mystique of these things will fall apart. But I wonder if maybe, you know, we're, we're ostensibly talking about the future of religion or maybe the next iteration of the church. <clears throat> I told you, David, or in my article, Bonhoeffer would say we need a religionless Christianity. I, for me, the notion of Christianity kind of captures this thing, and William Cavanaugh is good here. You know, it's just another religion. That's why I think we might need a religionless church. I love the idea that we can be involved in cells, you know, in a, in a body that's one and many at the same point. But I think if we if we if we tear down the curtains of these things, maybe we might find ourselves reaching out uh, to people in these bodies that, you know, we could call churches or something. Michael, I see you kind of um, again. I love Well, that. you know, Jacques Derrida in his later writing, I mean, I'm not a big fan of his early stuff, but in his later writing, he became a kind of apophatic theologian. Like, and the one book in particular is The, the Gift of Death. I think that's where I first encountered it, where he talks about, you know, this idea of religion without religion, right? Me meaning, that there, there is a, I think this is what he means, it's hard to tell with him sometimes, but there's a kind of intuitive sense for it, right? And this is, David mentioned, well, homo religiosos, right? Which is Jung, his observation, his term, I think. Um, so there's that, and I think, and I think and you've mentioned humor, Mike, it's so important because, and, and I, you know, by the way, a lot of people might not know this, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in the divine feminine. Um, but the thing is, with so you know, when they started having women priests and bishops stuff, I'm sorry, but that's a pretty humorless bunch <laughs> in general, right? How did that happen? So, 
Which is why John Milbank, when he commented on the, the submerged reality, he called me, he said, uh, Michael Martin thinks feminist theologians aren't feminist enough. Uh, it's true. <laughs> it's true. They're just, they're acting like dudes. Um, and this is what happened, and I wrote in that, in that substack, um, why we started doing house church. Because I was, you know, it, when it, in the, we're talking about technology, right? When they said, well, we're not gonna, you can't come to church, but you can watch it online. I said, all right, I draw the line here. And then I had to draw another line. And, and where the bishops, remember this, uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, rescinded temporarily the, the obligation to attend Mass on Sunday. And then arbit almost arbitrarily, they, de they decided to reinstate it. I'm like, <laughs> that's all it takes is a nudge from the government? for you to do this come on and and, and it, but this is the problem with institutions right because institutions feed off other institutions and then you have this kind of brahmin class and all of us the rest of us who you know do, do all the living and dying in this place um and i so for me part of this project of the reimagination of christianity is the the like you said, you know, looking behind the curtain, or 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 you can another way to say that is to take away your power. Mm -hmm. You know, whether whatever it happens to be, right? And I think when and people still can't get why we're doing this house church thing. I'm still getting emails from people saying, "How could you leave the body of Christ?" I said, "Well, like this, because mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to." And I remember, the thing is, I don't think I really left. I, I, you know, I'm not ex-Catholic. I'm, I'm Catholic, but I, I'm ex-institution. And didn't Illich, uh, David, you know, when he's talking about, he's calling on Bonhoeffer. You know, I wonder if you can be more concrete on this, almost like picturing or remembering your conversations with Illich yourself. But um, you know, seminal for me, from the first time I read The Vanishing American Clergyman 30 years ago, to your magisterial intellectual biography. But you know this notion that it will return again to the hillsides and to the mountaintops, mm -hmm. and there will be a blessing of consecration, a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, that, that for me, if they're looking, you know, if I have to speak from my experience, the tyranny that young people joining the church, you know, um, there's this kind of like infernal dance between the fewer people in there, the higher percentage of them that struggle with scrupulosity and what in a behavioralist yeah. conditioning they're doing to already scrupulous priests to act more scrupulous. And, and, you know, and we've been severed. I always say, you know, our, our ontological reality as Catholics is different because we're so severed from our hospitals and schools where severing isn't the right word. They're no longer innovative or they're nothing. So we have this church building where there's this strange infernal dance going. So, so when Illich says kind of just, you know, take it outside and have a simple blessing. I know that simple blessing over the elements is what young people need beyond critical mass. So, you know, we could say the religious impulse, there's a word. Uh, when I would kind of teach my Wendell Berry course at the college, I forget where it came up. But there's one way of looking at the word religion is to say, like, when my kids would walk to the post office and they didn't want to touch the cracks on the sidewalk, that's kind of religious behavior. Um, I have a, my stepfather-in-law. He's an atheist, but he celebrates his half birthday, his quarter birthday and everything. I tell him he's more religious than I am. Um, my kids, again, would they 
they would jump from the, the couch to the uh, to the other chair because they couldn't touch the floor. I think this is a wonderful human impulse to consecrate some days. Thomas Trahern on festival days. How beautiful. We're all yearning for that color. But when we make the whole world religious, there's no religion. And we have to get it back into a container that seems about appropriate. So that blessing over bread and wine um, is what the world needs. We're not looking like Protestant Reformation, like to wash out these things. Um, but these, you know, these are a lot of thoughts that I have that the disease of religion has in an anxious age has overtaken people. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's disembedded and now it tyrannizes people so that Fauci is more religious than I am. I, I'm the least religious person I know and I'm the only lay person running a Catholic church in my diocese. And I'm always telling people like, can I represent like something other than this strange thing that happens in church for an hour each Sunday? Because I'm losing well, my mind here. I was, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just thought of a remark that um, Yvonne Illich's friend Barbara Duden once made about him, which she said, uh -huh. at least a less religious man I never met. <laughs> uh, and I, I think she, she didn't mean to say something about a relationship to a church. Yeah. I think she meant to say something about a habit of thought. Yeah. Uh, I don't go to bed every night worrying about germs or worrying about if I ate yeah, meat at 11.59 yeah. so, on a Friday in Lent. Uh, well, I think she's talking in a certain way about fearlessness, right? Yeah. yeah yep. be, not a, be not afraid. Right. Um, is, is, so, the, is the crucial element there, right? That, mm -hmm. that religion. Um, but I mean, I think a careful analysis has to take place, right, about the elements of religion, right? So one of the words, one of the words that really preoccupies me and which is just everywhere doing harm is the word sacred, right? Any, any First Nation in Canada now can, Indians are, are sometimes called First Nations in Canada. Mm -hmm. And they're still called Indians in the United States, but we've been through about five different names, Aboriginal, Indigenous, and so on. But anything can be said to be sacred, right? This is our sacred this, this is our sacred that. <laughs> well, fine, right? This is my sacred shirt. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the sacred is just something that you make and then punish others for touching uh, because you've said it aside and you've said that god set it aside mm -hmm. um essentially mm -hmm. but it, it's it's a completely arbitrary idea it's it's um, it's the essence of arbitrary arbitrariness right, in a certain is. way <laughs> the essence uh, of arbitrariness yeah. uh the, the, the beginning of our the source of arbitrariness is, which is, then is to not be aware of where you're cutting the world up and what you're doing as you carve it up at those particular joints. So, uh, yeah, I think, again, I, I keep coming back to this, I guess, that the, the actual religion has to be exposed in order to think of a world uh, beyond religion or in a new religion or anything of that nature, uh, I think you first have to analyze the, the our current religious 
behavior, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So then, I mean, presumably the veil of the temple being rent in two. My central could be, metaphor could yeah, be the could be the begin is is the beginning of something that doesn't occur and does occur, obviously, because everything to do with Christianity is paradoxical, right? These this this was something I, I learned from uh, another Martin, uh, David Martin, uh, who is a British sociologist of religion and a priest, very, very helpful to me in understanding what Illich was talking about. And, and David said, well, you know, Christianity is a religion and not a religion. I don't know if he ever put it in those terms, right? But it, 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 it has to take the form of religion. So baptism must become a kind of circumcision, right? A mark of tribal belonging. Uh, even though it's it's the essence of a free act, uh, it can't become compulsory, but it does com become compulsory. Um, you know, as the Anabaptists later react against it. So, so his idea is that the these little bombshells are safely immured within the church. But that doesn't mean they don't explode from time to time, mm -hmm. right? So that element of the veil being rent is is always there in Christianity, right? And and it's it's it constantly expressing himself itself as as anti-slavery or as antinomian antinomianism or all these expressions throughout the history of Christianity mm -hmm. uh, express this dialectic of. of of containment explosion, right? Right. Um, so it it has to be kept alive in, in order to keep exploding. Therefore, it, it must be retained in some way, which it isn't now. Retained. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know. Yeah. Well, Sometimes I think a more humble container is what we need, Michael. Well, I think um, I've written about this, and people take it the wrong way. I think it, what's in order is a rewilding of the church. Yeah, that's an. And some people, when I've written about that, they said, "Oh, you mean letting the grass grow on the parish?" No, it's not. That's not what I mean. Going, you just native species. No, I'm talking a little bit more metaphysical. I mean, they're really in order for. You know, I think you know of all people, you know who said this, Slavo Žižek. That in order for Christianity to survive, it needs to die. Needs to die, yeah. Right, to re be to be rewilded in a way you could say. You know, what young people a phrase that they're responding to lately is if you tell them the kingdom of God, you know, it was always presented to be a contagion of sorts. It was just a word that maybe I saw in Gerald Heard, but this semester, like what? What is it? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. It's like the central proclamation of the gospel. This thing called the kingdom of God. It's like what Jesus can't shut up about. But it, you know, it, it's a perceptual. It, it could be like a contagion. It could spread. Boy, does that seem to open up this wild hunger and it you know your your phrase rewilding uh, uh, this the idea that it's a contagion that all of a sudden maybe uh you know maybe it appears that it can be spread but uh you know that that's hopeful that a contagion could spread that helps us kind of see 
you know, the new directions we want to go. Uh, David, you know, we're probably getting within the last, you know, five to 10 minutes. Um, a, a personal favor for me, and it definitely relates to our theme, is, um, you know, in our, in our local diocese, they have this again, I mentioned at the beginning, this thing called the ministerium. It's a big meeting. It's usually held at like a you know major conference center and so forth. But working with uh, some friends, as opposed to the theme being, you know, in the middle of this year, we have three years of Eucharistic renewal, the most holy, 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 real presence. Uh, you know, we kind of smuggled in the topic as being friendship. And I worked with this person to smuggle it in there based on really, you know, a, a huge theme for you in your intellectual biography of Village. Um, it's also something that's very personal to me that uh, you see crowds of students. I can see them walking to class right now at my window. Within this group of eight people I see, you probably have five of those that would say like they're incredibly lonely even in the midst of that crowd. So you say that, you know, prophecy according to Illich was supplanted by friendship. Um, could you do me a personal favor, David, if you have any, you know, to, to break that down a bit or to say something about friendship? Because I think we all know that this thing, religion of the future, the future of religion, um, if it's going to do anything for people, it's going to help connect them to others. And this word friendship, just like the idea of the kingdom of God being a contagion, friendship is something that they yearn for um, in a way and they don't even know what it is. It's like a word that's dangled before them. Uh, can you can you speak to that for a little while? I can try. Um, well, Ivan was a man who presumably was more than once called a prophet. I've heard it hundreds of times. So sure. he, must have, he must have heard it hundreds more than I did. Um, so what he's saying is simply that, you know, once the word of prophecy, which is on the tongues of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, is in the womb of Mary and then in the world, prophecy is fulfilled. That's the end of prophecy in the formal biblical sense. Now, he was aware that prophets are referred to in the New Testament, and he had the interesting idea that they're particular vocation was the detection of antichrist i.e the potential corruption of this uh, word but um a lot of others think that's not what prophets were but but generally so he's saying god is with us right that, that's the meaning of the incarnation it's this presence is fully available to me in the form of any other mm -hmm. that's what Ivan says the gospel is about it's what it means mm -hmm. uh, um, and so it, it to go back to a, a, a scheme that I think Michael was laying out a little bit I mean we've been through this 2000 year period uh, that Jung, you know, in Ion identifies with the age of, of Pisces, um, the fishes. But it doesn't matter how you think of this in great years or whatever, that there was, there was a widespread intuition um, 
that doesn't begin in the 1960s. I mean, you'll find it in the 1890s, but it is, it's growing and coming into one of its fruitions in the 1960s, that this is the, the threshold of a new age, of a, a new era of the world. And that one of, one of its forms is, is, is um, the end of Christianity in that formal institutional sense of, of the gospel requiring a, a strict containment, David Martin's sense of a, of a containment that it's, it's being released, right? As Ivan says in one of his writings from the 60s, it's being thrown at the seculum. You get a lot of this in von Balthasar as well. Yeah. Uh, that it's 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 entering the world in a new sense uh, with whatever fate it's going to have. And I think for Ivan, a big big part of that is is friendship, right? That it's 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 sustained, it's spread through friendships and. I've, I've written and I believe it that wherever he went, he he created churches. Uh, and that was his genius in a certain way. They were always groups of friends. Right? It's wild. And they and that they what friendship meant, I think above all, was a certain kind of fidelity, which is an interesting word, since obviously it's the same word as faith. Uh, but it's also being true too, so that we would bear with each other, we would bear each other, right? That it was it was available to us to practice all these things together in love without religious containment, right? Uh, so in a certain way, that is a vision of what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that I take faith, hope, nourishment from being with you two. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the, that, that's what I take to be friendship. Yeah. Uh, that, it, that it feeds us and that we experience the full reality, right? Of what has been contained in religion. So as far as sacraments, for example, I mean, I can never get over the church. My imagination was formed in the church, right? The, long before I was consciously thinking about it, my sensibility and my aesthetic feeling, it all took shape in Christian, in Anglican churches. So I'll long for that till I die. Uh, but in my experience, um, although the, I can remember a few memorable masses with Ivan, which really seemed to me to be what a mass should be. The, he was presiding? Eating. No, he never presided after. Okay. Yeah. But he, he never but he was with among friends. So mm -hmm. you could... There was no altar rail. Mm -hmm. There was no, it was, it, it was a meal amongst friends as I, I felt it should be. But 
for the most part in my experience, it's when friends come over for dinner and music that I most vividly experience communion. Yeah. Right? Well, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's never been blessed by a priest. Um, but for me, that's that's a, a secular sacrament. That's a mm -hmm. that's a communion. <clears throat> uh, we're going to eat and we're going to sing and <laughs> and we're going to eat and we're going to sing together yeah. uh, in the face of one another. And so that's yeah. I don't know. Is that anything? Well, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, yeah. that that poem I mentioned, "Love Three by. Uh, George Herbert that so moved Simone Bates. Well, that's well, what happens. It's yeah. It's the Eucharist, but it's it's at a table sitting yeah. down with Jesus saying, Hey, let's sit down. Yeah. Just something here. Right? Love bad me welcome. It, yeah, it, and remember, it, like in many it, churches right now, the wine is gone because of COVID. Uh many people are just saying a prayer of unity as opposed to the sign of peace. And we could do a whole show on Ivan <laughs> Illich and Conspiratio and so forth. But um and again, I always invoke probably for the fourth time here on the history of the podcast, Coventry Patmore's, that the Eucharist was a meal so that every meal might become a Eucharist. But uh, we have a problem if people aren't having meals at home, they're just on the TV. You know, we need, um, Jesus could only use the meal as a Eucharist because the meal was pre-existing. Right now, that's not a reality culturally. And if we yeah. were, are to rebuild it, as opposed to pointing people to that five minutes at mass where you say, this is the real most holy presence, We'd be right. better served encouraging people to invite friends over for dinner with music and embraces and kisses of peace and food yeah. shared amongst friends yeah. and yeah. germs and germs yeah. and germs. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. So we haven't lost anything yeah. because we can't lose it. Yeah. If it's real, we can't lose it. George Grant loved this story about uh, General MacArthur. Uh, <laughs> Who said the communists have killed God? And George said, "No, <laughs> that they can't do." <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. What a great way to end, David. I hope. Uh, I hope another year doesn't pass. We're probably getting to a close to a year of this podcast, Michael. I really I, think, I believe I, I'm out of mead. Otherwise, there would be. I would issue a uh, um, Martin family meadery commemorative. 365 days of the red yeah, that's generation. That, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. But, we, need a, uh, we need a beer can. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be more fitting. Uh, uh, David, there's so many other subjects that you've pursued. You know, when, when you're ready, you know, you're, you're such a friend and uh, inspiring when you would like to come on and talk. Like, so I heard it, you were talking about the history of journalism, right? And it was so relevant yeah. to what we were talking about, peering behind the curtain. You're working on a book on the uh, the CBC. If you ever want to do a podcast based upon that, Michael and I think, you know, all things are holy. So uh, we'd love to have you back and talk. All about right. Well, that. that book is, I hope, going to be in the hands of publishers within a few months. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, I so, grew up on uh, the CB CBC, both radio and television, because nice. in Detroit, we got it. Yeah, you were a Detroiter, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 awesome. Well, thank you, David. Kelly. All right, well, and, bless uh, you both. It's a great joy to spend time with you. Absolutely. And uh, Thanks. I hope we're going to meet pretty soon. I hope yeah. so. Yeah, uh, when our country will relax its borders. You've got to stop meeting right? like this. That's great. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening bye -bye. to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye bye now. Bye.